When things get darkest, we must be our brightest. We must love our hardest. You're listening to Better, and I'm your host, Mark Brand. I deeply believe that everyone has the power to leave the planet a better place than they found it. In my decades of frontline work, I've seen it happen against all odds in the toughest corners of the world. This show was created as a guide to share stories of resilience and hope from the brightest individuals who have overcome challenges we all face to help us all envision and build a better life. Every week, my incredible guests and I will give you access to the conversations we've been having behind closed doors, away from stages, and away from traditional media. Until now, we share this space with the explicit intention to empower you to be your biggest, brightest, most beautiful self, so we can build a better world together. Welcome to Better. I couldn't be more excited, and I know you hear me say this every week, but I know that you can hear my voice right now, to have my guest, Sarah Eaglehart, with us. Sarah is, in all seriousness, a social justice warrior. Now, you know that I say that about our guests and they come through, but Sarah has been somebody that I've looked up to and have been aware of for years now via our adjacent friend, Natalie. Uh, she's the co-CEO of Return to the Heart Foundation, where she works tirelessly for the visibility of Native American women and Indigenous women across the planet. She's also an Emmy Award-winning social justice storyteller, has um, produced and co-produced an amazing short that we'll talk about with John Legend, Marches for Women's Rights, which she just did a few days ago. We're going to get into that too. Sarah, welcome to Better. We're so honored to have you. No, Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yes, yes. Can't wait for our conversation today. And what I always ask my guests is, I have introduced you that way, but if asked, how do you introduce yourself these days? Uh, Well, I usually share a traditional greeting, which um, we say in the Lakota language, you know, ampetu washte, which is good day. Wambli shinoe amachiapi, chante washte, chiozape nape. Which means... My name is Eagle Shaw Woman. I greet you with a good heart. And yeah, my name is Sarah. It's my English name. I appreciate you and appreciate you setting that container for us. And for um, our listeners at home, I am recording today on the unceded territories, the Musqueam, Snohomish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, uh, as well as the Squamish nation here, otherwise known in its colonial name by Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, so... We are both in our spaces and have shared that with you. And where I want to start is with your overarching mission. And the mission as it was shared with me is to revolutionize the way that indigenous narratives are portrayed in the mainstream media and to help set the record straight on the history of Native American people through storytelling and bringing healing. Can you share more about the tools that you use to do specifically this and where we can dig into them? Well, I, that sounds really good, by the way. <laughs> I'm going to take that and like put it on my website somewhere. Um, I think for me, in my world, I've spent a lot of time educating. It's like I've basically made a career of it, of educating through um, different groups, whether it's, you know, internationally with the Episcopal Church or, you know, working in philanthropy um, or now storytelling. And I feel like for me, a lot of my attention is going toward storytelling in the mainstream media because honestly, I'm just really frustrated that things haven't changed much. And I'm frustrated mm. that, you know, we, it's like there's a lot of talk and not a lot of action. And so I really feel that we need a culture shift um, in order to make those changes, in order for people to really understand that the issues, the very systemic issues that, you know, Indigenous peoples have been dealing with for decades. And we love the word action on this show and in our work as well. And I think that is the most frustrating part if you're doing the work is people are really good at saying the words. They're really good at sharing the posts. They're really good at doing the one march. They're really good at showing up on the day. They'll wear the orange shirt. They'll get the moose hide pin. They'll do the thing, but then they don't do the things. And we talk a lot about decolonizing your life or decolonizing your workplace and what that looks like. That's action. And so in that same place, our true history, the real history that you talk about, isn't just for the healing of indigenous folks, it's for all of our healing. 
right? Right. And so where do you think that we start with that? Like if you could say, hey, today or tomorrow, these are the tools that you can implement in your life across the Americas, what would they be? Well, I mean, I would say, first of all, there's a lot of challenges that I think that people have in actually dealing with history. It's because everything sort of begins with history. And if we're not acknowledging this horrific history of, you know, indigenous peoples on in any of these lands, then we're not really dealing with the root cause of racism, which has led to so many other issues um, that are all interrelated. And there is a lot of shame that people carry in, you know, looking at the history and where they might have and still are um, complicit or privileged and receiving the benefits of that. And so, first of all, it's like, actually just look at your history and actually just think about your own personal um, relationship with the communities. And do you even know the people in your area? You know, do you know who they are? Do you know their history? Right. And, um, you know, which was really the emphasis behind land acknowledgements. And, you know, that was a movement that I was really happy to support very early on um, and worked with several influencers to help do that work because, um, because they were just great people, you know, like Portugal, the man, they were, they were like, we're just going to start doing it. And they were, they were been doing it for years. And then it sort of caught on in, you know, the United States. And so it's, it's like, yes, that's a beginning place. And then at some point you're like, okay, now we level up guys. Remember like, <laughs> you know, we go to the next level. Um, so I find myself um, becoming one of those elders that I never thought I would be. That's like, yes. Chewing people out sometimes. I mean, I'm not trying to chew them out, but I'm just like, I've become that elder that's like, hey, you guys, you know, and I never thought I would be that elder. And now here I am. But I get it now, right? Because I think 20 years ago, I didn't understand it. And I was like, why are they being so mean? And like, now I'm like, oh, they're calling it out because they're just so frustrated that things haven't changed. And so I, and sometimes I think in those moments, um, people are so anti-conflict. Like they just don't know how to like work yeah. through conflict that yeah. it's like they immediately shut down instead of leaning into like the difficult conversation that needs to be had. And so I've really been encouraging people to, you know, lean into the conflict. It's okay. Like it's, you know, nothing bad is going to happen where <laughs> you just have to be open minded and, you know, speak in a respectful way and, you know, learn, listen and learn. Yeah. Pandering has continued to perpetuate the violence and the lies. That's just simply all it is. When we try to move, particularly with the way in which indigenous peoples move, which is with care and with leadership and with opportunity. And if that is not met or reciprocated by the people who've colonized these places, then you have to stand up into a different power and meet somebody somewhere in a language that they understand. And when yeah. that's just, it's not true to your being, it's challenging, right? One of my, so I get to read a lot of your stuff, which is really enjoyable. One of my favorite quotes from you is just very straightforward, which is around helping people. And it is in Lakota society, we're taught everybody is a leader. Everybody is a leader. And that everybody has the opportunity to help their people. And when we talk about community, that's, I mean, we, we, that's the centering design point of everything that we do which is our community is reliant on us and vice versa. And we've got very confused that reliant is financial and solely financial. And that's, that's where we're lost. And I say right. to people who've got a lot of money, I'm like, hey, you know, when climate continues to get worse, you are only safe because of the community around you, regardless of creed color. Like you are only safe because of your relational status within that community. I'm in the downtown east side. I'm safe as houses. No matter what happens, I've got hundreds and hundreds of people that I'm friends with and vice versa because of our actions together, right? And so I think right. that disconnect is we're safe because of privilege and financial and we've been over here. We can't release that. Then, then Otherwise, we'll be unsafe. And it's this really dangerous place for people to be in. So I love all of that. And I think the other, so I'm going to, do one more quote of yours and I'm going to do many more throughout this interview, but it's around um, stolen lands. And the quote is, we're having to recover from those harms 
and, and around attempted genocide and genocide, but not only are we having to recover from those harms, the non-Native people have been lied to too. So I think it's important to be able to just acknowledge the truth and stand in truth, confront it, and also heal from it. And I feel like that's a bit of a summation of what we were just talking about, which is yep. you have to be comfortable in discomfort, right? Yeah. I mean, we have. <laughs> I'm just, I mean, honestly, it's like Indigenous peoples have had to sit in discomfort for generations and not just discomfort, but fear and, you know, worrying about your safety. And I feel like, you know, I still worry about my safety in certain parts of the country, um, in, in particular, even in my homelands. And so, yeah, I feel like the least that, you know, non-natives can do is sit in the discomfort. Absolutely. And we can do a whole lot more than that. And I want to talk a lot about where you are from and advocating for the land rights there, particularly as we come back. Folks, you are on better. I'm with my incredible guest and elder, now proclaimed. It is loud. That is real. No, I'm not Ebar. an elder. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, you are definitely moving into that space, and I think we're all going to be better off for it. We'll be right back with Sarah Eagleheart. Keep it locked. Welcome back to Better. We are with Sarah Eaglehart, and I'm excited to dive into an upcoming documentary that you're working on called Lakota Nation versus the United States. I think it's a perfect segue from our intro there. And you're working with, of course, award-winning actor, environmental rights activist, Mark Ruffalo. And the focus that I've um, been told, but I want to hear it from you, is it's the fight to reclaim the Black Hills in South Dakota which could then be transferable to the fight of all the original lands. So tell me a little bit about the inception of that and how that's going and, and what we can learn from you today about it. Yeah. I mean, the story of the Black Hills or the Pahasapa um, in South Dakota really goes back to the treaties where, um, you know, the, the people of the Ocheti Shakoe and, and some other tribes as well, Plains tribes were, you know, we were, that land was ours by treaty right. So, you know, in everything that happened, of course, gold is found in the Black Hills. And then it just becomes like, you know, a pioneer free for all. And, you know, our people are pushed out of there. And it's been, you know, a contentious issue, obviously, because now there's like million dollar homes and, you know, they carved uh, the presidents on over, you know, a mountain structure that was formerly known as six grandfathers. Um, and so to think of like, just like the desecration of the land of, of lands that we've held sacred and where we went to pray. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just a lot because we're so connected to the place spiritually. I mean, wind cave, our birthplace is in the black Hills. Um, so our creation stories of how we emerged from mother earth are in the black Hills. And so when you think about the issues today and, you know, the movement of land back, this is one of the very blatant cases where, right. you know, the Black Hills legally belongs to the Ocheti Shakoe. Um, so being able to tell this story through a documentary um, as an executive producer, you know, with my dear friend, um, Mark Ruffalo, who has just been an amazing advocate for years, um, years on, on climate justice. I mean, I remember marching with him in New York City um, during the climate march. So it's just been, and that's the first time, you know, I saw him and he's just been really a dedicated um, partner in all of it. So I just have so much gratitude for him and and his friendship. And, and then the ability to tell the story and to utilize, you know, a native director, Jesse Shortbull, um, and mm. some really other great directors, um, Laura Tomaselli and um, producer Ben Hajin from uh, the MLK FBI documentary right. are also a part of the team. Um, so, yeah, I can't wait to see it. And it's premiering at Tribeca like next month, 
which is crazy. Wow. Wow. So by the time we're listening to this episode, which is very soon, it's it's weeks away, and we will make sure to share with our audience when it pops again. And I, I'm sorry, I just got stuck because there's information you just shared there that I was unaware of, which is Mount Rushmore is carved into the original place called Six Grandfathers? Yes, literally. Yeah. Oh they're God. rock formations that look like like native elders. I mean, that that's why that's called like the six grandfathers. So yeah, they just carve some, you know, white men over, over that rock formation. We'll let that one sit for a second. Cause <laughs> as far as analogies go, that's kind of the, the tip of the spear right there. Yeah. People don't know. And it, it's just wow. crazy to think about, you know, um, it's crazy to think about just because of just that fact alone at how, you know, um, I would say like how dishonorable that is. Right. Um, but then secondly, when you look at the issues that we're facing today, you know, we have such high unemployment rates, um, within, you know, the tribal populations that surround the black Hills that it's sort of unreal, um, and to think that, you know, our people, you know, can't afford housing in the Black Hills, you know, even if they wanted to build a house there, they can't right. afford to. So and then the level of racism that happens in the Black Hills is um, unreal. I mean, during COVID, I, I went back home during COVID from L.A. and I went back and I was really glad that I did um, because I just felt like I needed to be there. And. I literally had a vision like during a meditation that I was supposed to go home. And I saw myself very squarely in Peshla, which is the heart of the Black Hills. And I saw myself standing there and I was like, oh, I'm supposed to go home. And like two weeks later was like moving back home. And um, and then we found out COVID was really bad. <laughs> and so I, and then just being home, I think, after being away for 20 years, you know, I grew up in Pine Ridge Indian Reservation and then I moved away. And I think that I sort of hoped that the racism levels would go down. Um, but no, it's increased, like horrifically, like increased uh, that I was shocked. I was shocked. Um, and it's just like a lot of, you know, non-Native men, mostly white literally yelling at me for no reason, like pitching a tent that they didn't think I should pitch it. And so they come like screaming at me or yelling at me because I parked in their parking spot, like at the store or, I mean, and it's just the level of that people think that they can do that and that's okay. It's just crazy. And then a cousin of mine was chased by somebody in a vehicle um, from the reservation into town for no reason. He actually got convicted really recently for doing that because she, you know, um, she reported him, um, and he chased her for 40 miles at like super high speeds. And she was like, had wow. no clue why this guy. So, you know, when I say like, you just don't feel safe in a place, it's, it's like, seriously, you don't feel safe. Cause you don't know. Somebody might just chase you in a truck for no reason. And we hear these stories literally daily. And I saw something yesterday. First of all, thank you for sharing. And I saw yesterday a Canadian leader jumped on and was really deeply promoting our country over the shooting in Buffalo. He was like, we are so lucky that we're in Canada and, you know, this is not blah, blah, blah. And all of us, when we hear that, when we work front lines in Canada, we're like, what are you talking about? And the perfect tweet was responded to it and said, you mean as we uncover the thousands and thousands of genocidal children in the backyards of churches? Like, yeah, we're, we're, we're so, we love to take the one thing that we feel like we're, we're superior in and ignore the rest of the pain People get chased consistently in Alberta and other provinces here who are of color. There is wide open racism. There's convoys of racism that people mm -hmm. then paint as freedom. Like things happen here that are so insane as well. So I just want to make sure that for the listeners, wherever you may be and whatever lands you may be on, this is not a people like to then say, oh, well, this is a Dakota issue. No, it's not. 
this is a like this is a New York issue or this is a California. No, it's not. This is very much a uh, an America's issue and also a global issue. And so I, I just wanted to bring that back. And as we jump into our next segment, something else I wanted to pull out from what you said is that your work is heavily guided by prayer and an ancestral practice of prayer. So knowing that you had to go home comes from that place and praying and meditation is an integral part from my understanding of your life and your creative process. And so I'd love yeah. to talk about that as we come back. Um, folks, you are on better. We are with Sarah Eagle Hart. I am so deeply appreciative of your time and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Better. As we exited the last segment, I was reflecting uh, my understanding of Sarah Eaglehart's creative practice and how it's informed by prayer, uh, meditation, silence, inward work. And I would love you to share with our audience because I, I, we center tools here. And this is a genuine tool that our audience can use. So would you mind sharing with us? Yeah, I mean... So I, I, I feel like I always have to share something with like a story. Um, Please. When I worked at the Episcopal Church, I was on the staff of the presiding bishop, <clears throat> Catherine Jeffers Shorey, for seven years. And, and she was the first female presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. Um, it was not in my plans, mind you. I did not plan to go from working at a casino to working at a church. Um which I literally did, but you know, Episcopalians are good like that. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and it was, I don't know, but apparently I do are. now. That's amazing. So you know, they are. <laughs> okay. And, um, and it was really, you know, I, I remember working with, uh, some of my Irish colleagues, uh, and developing curriculum around the repudiation of the doctrine of discovery. And we would, uh, partner this history along with healing and, you know, as well as um, like action. So asset-based community development is, is what we would partner together. And the theory was really, okay, we really can't have um, healing until we have action and, or action even without healing, right? And, and one of the reflections she gave to me was that um, she said, you know, in working with all of these different communities of color, she said, you know, I have to say with like Native Americans, um, you guys drop in like really quickly. And what she meant by that was, you know, she said, when I work with all of these different communities, it might take them a day. It might take them two days. It might take them three days to actually get to like the level of depth that native Americans or first peoples are just really comfortable with. And if you asked mm. a native person, when did they first know God or in our language, we would say Tengashla, the creator, we would say we always knew Tinkashla was there because um, our prayers end with a phrase that's Medakuya Oyase. That's our amen. That's our Lakota amen, Medakuya Oyase. And it means we are all related, we are all connected. And so when you grow up with this philosophy that is your amen, that is reminding you that you're in relationship with not only um, each other as human beings, but also the two-legged, the four-legged, the winged, like Mother Earth and the sky, it's this constant reminder that you have a responsibility to something, someone bigger than yourself. And mm. so you're definitely put in a space of collectivism immediately. Um, so growing up with that, we always know that, but I, I think on the other side for me, one of the things that I've been really fortunate about is, you know, I did grow up on the reservation. I grew up in a really rural community in South Dakota. And while I hated the snow growing up, I'll have to say that, you know, being in a rural place was very, was good for me because, you know, I learned how to be reflective. I mean, there's not a lot to do in like nine months of winter, right? Uh, so you, you learn to be, you know, um, reflective, but at the same time, I have an identical twin sister who is now a psychotherapist. Um, mm -hmm. But when we were young, we were constantly reflecting back with each other about the world that we were seeing, what we were encountering, you know. And 
I think that really helped to develop, you know, this practice of, you know, really taking the time to think. And then also we have a lot of cultural uh, laws like Lakota laws that are reminding you of how you're supposed to behave and act in this world through a value system. And I call it a law, yes. not just a value, but I'll explain that in a minute. And so these laws are around humility, uh, compassion, generosity, wisdom, courage, fortitude. And um, all of this was taught to you through action. So it's experientially taught, which is why in order to learn what's behind some of this, you actually have to go into the community. You have to be friends with people in the community. Like you have to gain their trust. And yes, it's probably going to take a while um, because of history, but like, that's how you have to learn. And my auntie really recently, I was calling it values. And she was saying, you know, that's such a Westernized term, calling it a value. She said, because, um, you know, it's actually a law because historically we had consequences if you didn't follow these laws. And, it's true. So if you think about like domestic violence, for example, we never had that in our communities historically because you would be banned from the tribe. Like you would be kicked out if you committed, you know, domestic violence. If you murdered somebody, you were considered not to be Lakota anymore. Like, like you're just like, okay, you're not one of us. Cause like you, you know, that's not okay. So I feel like that's a basis like where you where I started from and like my understanding of of being in the world and of of grounding and, and being in that space. I think that the other thing that was really important for me was that uh, I in working at the church, um, I was surrounded by people of faith. Right. And and I'm fortunate that I got to grow up in two different um faith backgrounds, you know, Episcopalian, which my great grandmother was a very devout Episcopalian and then Lakota spirituality. And so I was always taught it's all one and the same. And, you know, we all have one creator. And, and so I learned from very early on to respect other people's beliefs and um, ways and working there, I was surrounded by priests. I was a team leader for diversity, social justice and environmental justice, which I was, 30 years old in charge of this team of seven people working internationally. I know. Thank you. It was yes. kind of ridiculous. Um, but being appointed into that position meant that, you know, I had the trust mostly, I believe because of my background of growing up in a collective environment. So I knew how to build a team of people and take and listen and really look at as a, as a team and, they were people that were very faithful. So they reinforced if you had a feeling or an intuition or a thought about something that you said, Oh no, I, I feel like, you know, this needs to happen or we need to move that way or that way. They would say, okay, like, let's take some time. And like, let's think about that. You know, let's, let's, let's take some time. Let's pray. And it became a place that really reinforced the idea that it was okay to like really hone in on your intuition and your gut feeling. And so I really feel like I got, I was able to do that really quickly. And during my day-to-day -day activities, what I would do is I would turn off the TV, especially if I'm giving a speech or doing something big, I turned off the radio. I would just, you know, walk around in silence and sort of see what came to me. Of course, always burning sage, you know, always grounding and burning sage or cedar. Um, but those are just, you know, one of the daily practices that that I do to really ground myself and connect. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I think, you know, what came to me throughout all of that narrative and story is that the difference of living out of synergy and out of practice is where the traditional religions have separated. And it's, it's been this really interesting thing. I grew up around Anglican people. And of course, Episcopalians are a branch off of that, that are a much more inclusive. And I can say that with great confidence and comfort um, part. And I, I grew up spiritual, not religious. And so I very much grew up also with the understanding that everything around us is part of God, that we are all part of this mycelial network of the planet that is 
is God for us. And whichever deity you pray to, this is a very inclusive space, of course. And I respect and love whatever choice you make. And that is, as long as you're living in integrity and living in, in synchronicity with those around you and kindness. And so what you shared there for, for me, what hit home so hard is learning to walk in both worlds, understanding they are of the same and being able to help others navigate progression. So I, I just wanted to honor you and thank you for the work that you did within at such a young age, like to step into that place under the first female bishop as a young woman of color coming from both worlds and to be able to lead also comes from a place of peace and knowing and understanding and not accusatory energy, right? How can we walk together? What are our practices that are the same? What are our practices where we can meet? And if prayer is that practice, then what a beautiful way to, to govern. When we come back, speaking of which, you've, you brought your sister into the conversation. I'm super excited to talk about Emma Eaglehart as well, your identical twin sister and psychotherapist who you wrote Warrior Princesses Strike Back with. And it's so exciting. I'm so excited when we come back to talk about Warrior Princesses Strike Back, which is described to me as the firsthand glimpse into the lived reality of growing up on Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, home to the original peoples of this land, yet one of the poorest communities in America. There's so much in there. So when we come back on Better, we are with my guest, Sarah Eagleheart. Keep it locked. Welcome back to Better. All that talk of prayer and meditation <laughs> dropped me into, you guys can't see me, you folks can't see me, but I, my body is relaxed, my mind is relaxed, and I also feel incredibly motivated. You know, I think when we get to have these conversations and be in a place, we pull out parts of it, right, that really resonate for us, and there's so many in this particular conversation, so thank you for the time we've already spent, and moving in to Warrior Princesses Strike Back. Again, the book that you co-wrote with your twin sister and psychotherapist, which is of note. And I think that lens really brings a lot. And I want to hear about that. Emma Eaglehart uh, White, who we're also excited to meet at some point here on the show. So tell us about how the book comes to fruition, because you obviously live this life. You live this experience together. And at what point do you look at each other and go, we got to write this thing? Oh my gosh, it was probably about four or five years ago. Um, you know, I, we were in Minneapolis and I was, uh, working there and she came to visit me and she's 14 minutes younger than me, by the way. Um, but to me, I always felt like 10 years. Like I really took on like a mothering role. Although I feel like we've switched those roles like throughout our lives now where <laughs> I think she's more the mom now, but, um, you know, I, I remember just saying to her, like, Hey, I think I'm supposed to write a book. And mm. I was really thinking to myself, like, oh, I'm so special. Like, creators talking to me, like, I feel this, like, I'm supposed to write a book, like, just sort of feeling that energy. And she's like, she's like, yeah, me too. And she's very much mm. like quiet, introverted, like, very like monotone <laughs> a lot of the time. And uh, I was like, what? Really? Well, what's your book about? She said, healing. I said, my book too. And so it was funny that just in that moment, we were both thinking the same thing, which is actually quite often um, with us. And so I thought, okay, we're supposed to write this book together. And we just begun this journey. And we decided really early on that um, we wanted to write it in a memoir style. So we wanted to be able to tell our own stories and be able to share them with the world in order to help Native Americans, but also to help, you know, just general audiences understand Lakota worldview because I think growing up and working in all these different environments and, you know, doing the translating bridge building, you know, all of it, I began to realize, you know, that um, people just don't understand indigenous worldview. And I thought, okay, if we can share these stories through our perspective, then we can also begin to help people understand how these Lakota values really influenced um, our healing. And it's not to say like, you know, we had this perfect childhood. We didn't, we, we ran into so many um, challenges. So yeah, my twin sister's a psychotherapist. And so even I started healing 
you know, when she started learning at college <laughs> and um, was telling right. me about, you know, oh, she's like, I think you might be codependent. And I was like, you don't know, like, that I'm codependent, like, you know, <laughs> and, and, um, and then I would Google it because like, I'm a type personality. So I was Googling it and I'm like, okay, so, okay, maybe I am codependent. <laughs> and, I, and then I would go and I'd find a counselor because I was like, all right, well, we're just going to take care of this. Like, we're going to nip it in the bud. We're going to like, we're just going to handle this and like move straight forward. And like, after my first session with the codependency counselor, I go back to her and I'm like, so, hey, how long is this healing thing going to take? And she, <laughs> and she was like, she, she did exactly what you did. She laughed. And I was really serious. I was like, She's like, of course you want a timeline for your healing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, I want to know. Like, you know, we're just going to go through this. And so when I think back to like that moment, like I just laugh and I just think it's so funny because, you know, healing has definitely been a journey. And, and even after, you know, my first, um, you know, ventures into, you know, getting therapy and learning about how my childhood affected my life and then all of the situations that I was in. I mean, it's, there are things that are, are, that are just so deep that nobody ever talks about. And I think at some point for me anyway, it's always a feeling of calling as if something that just, it just keeps coming up over and over again that I have to tell it. And I've learned in my life that if I just don't, if I don't do it, that's going to keep coming up like again and again. So yes. it's better yes. just to like, you know, be direct and just deal with it in that moment and, you know, do what you're being guided to do. And so, yeah, that's been sort of the process in, in writing the book. So, um, you know, we grew up on Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. We, um, our mother was a single mother. Um, our father is also from our same tribe, um, the Ogallala Lakota, and he, you know, was never in our lives. And so our mom was raising us by herself. Um, and she was a police officer working on the Rosebud Indian Reservation. And she has wow. three sisters and two brothers and very independent, like strong, beautiful woman. And then when we were seven years old, two drunk drivers ran us off the road and a piece of metal went into her brain and severed a memory nerve. And so she woke up from this car accident looking exactly the same, but she was a different person in many ways. Um, she was mentally um, a teenager. So she remembered brothers and sisters, but she didn't remember having children. She was very forgetful. She had a 30 second time span in um, her memory. And so she was very frustrated. And then she began to self-medicate with alcohol and drugs. And so from ages seven to 14, we were back and forth between her and our extended family. And luckily we had an extended family that stepped up and took us in. And um, so we really live out the kinship bonds of our people, which is that your aunties and uncles are your mom and your dad. And, you know, and they stepped in and took care of us. And so we definitely had that as a protective factor. And that's what Native Americans have, right, are these culture and values and these protective factors that have kept us um, surviving for so long. I mean, people are always, you know, you think about it, it's like, okay, I wasn't even supposed to be here. You know, you look at all the genocide that, that's happened and you're like, okay, I wasn't even supposed to be here. But somehow, you know, we survived mostly because of our, our culture and our language and our value system. And so we wanted to be able to integrate all of that into our stories and use real time contemporary examples, because so much of the stories that are out there are told by white men, you know, and there is actually no native book specifically on contemporary self-help and healing from a native perspective, like whatsoever. So wow. it's exciting for us to be able to tell these stories, but, you know, our mother's story is one, uh, protesting our high school when we were 16 is another, they had a warrior, um, princess homecoming ceremony, big chief medicine man thing that they did. 
Um, and so of course we protested and then, um, you know, I talk a lot about my advocacy work, organizing work and some of the challenges that I have found there, even the challenges that I found working at the Episcopal church. I talk about that and then we encompass it in Lakota values and how, um, how that can really help you live your life and how that's really helped us. And, and it's also a way of continuing those, um, those values and educate people. Incredible. As you share your stories, um, it's, it's just, it's so much. And thank you for, for sharing all of the pieces with us, but I want five more hours, a period. <laughs> like I just, I, I don't, I don't want this conversation. I feel like we're just warming up. Um, and I can't wait to have you come back and share with us after the book is out and the world goes crazy for it. Cause of course it will. Uh, but a couple of the threads that I just want to pull there is there's a quote of yours that um, I think was the most resonant for me before we sat down today. And it's, there are so many Native American stories that need to be told from an indigenous woman's perspective. And we need to be able to, f- to be free to tell that perspective and to bring healing not only to our people, but I feel like the Native American story, our history is not just our history, but everyone's. And that is so true. And so thank you for bringing this message which is such strong and powerful medicine. So we will definitely have you back when the book goes live. Uh, It is being pressed on Feminist Press. It is coming January of next year. Um, And we can't, we genuinely can't wait. If you're with us on the radio, this has been better. I know that you're equally as excited as I am to have Sarah Eagleheart back with us in the interim. Her socials will be linked, uh, of course, to the episode as well as links to all of the pieces that we spoke about today. And we're just so grateful for your time and for your energy, Sarah. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. And what I'm excited to segue into now is a friend of the show, Kitty Colbert. We ran her uh, episode a few weeks ago and really helped us get to the baseline of what happened with Roe versus Wade. Of course, Catherine or Kitty Colbert, if you did not hear that episode, has been the lead proponent and legal tip of the spear for women's reproductive rights in the U.S. For over 30 years, she defended Casey in 92, kept Roe alive, and now we know where we are based on her teaching and education through episode prior. Sarah, along with a lot of our friends, uh, marched on March 14th, but also gave a keynote talk about her personal experience. I have done everything in my power not to bring this energy into the rest of the episode because it was the most exciting part for me Um, before I got to know about the rest of it. Could you please share your experience? Of course, you've been part of this resistance and movement for so, so, so long. Set it it up contextually any way you would like, and then please share as much as, as you're comfortable with. Sure. I mean, I've been a part of Women's March uh, since the beginning with, um, you know, after the election of Trump. So in 2017, been on this journey. And I think, you know, always supporting reproductive justice and women's rights, indigenous women's rights. And and I think when you look at some of the stories that I tell, um, even the work that I do, it really is about uplifting women, especially indigenous women, um, because I feel like they are the center of their communities. They're doing all the work. They're doing the PPE response. You know, they're they're organizing. They're getting out the vote. Like they're taking care of their kids. They have their own business. They're creative. I mean, they're just the list goes on and on. And I felt like, okay, these are the women that we need to honor. And then when you look at history, so many times it's men that's lifted up, like Native men or white men. You know, it's very lifted up in a very patriarchal way. And so part of being um, in Women's March is bringing a different perspective to the team and, and being on the board um, since the beginning now. <laughs> um, being on the board has been really important to me as well. And like I said, sometimes I am the elder in the room. Um, so I would say one of the things actually before the march is I talked to the women's groups about um, not really investing their time in Indigenous communities and, you know, mm-hmm. said hey, sometimes it can feel like you're tokenizing <laughs> and instead of like actually being reciprocal, right? Um, so, and then I try to create those reciprocal um, opportunities within um, the work that I do, right? Um, and then, yeah, I shared for the first time that I've had two abortions and, and it really just came up in the moment for me. 
um, as I was doing this sort of gut check that I usually do before I'm going on stage. And it just, you know, that was the most peaceful I have felt of any speech I've ever given. And it was literally just this phrase of connecting, um, you know, the land acknowledgement to also like the creator Tankashla and then thanking Tankashla for being in my life and guiding me and loving me and supporting me. And then saying, you know, through my two abortions and then there was like loud clapping and then, um, as like, and the birth of my two sons. And there was even more loud clapping, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that the creator can be through with you in all of those moments. And I felt like that was such an important message to share, especially when we're dealing with this issue where, you know, the Christian right is saying, you know, you're going to go to hell. (laughs) You're going to, you're going to go to hell. I mean, there's so many reasons why we'd go to hell. Right. But um, sending a message of like love and support that, you know, that is my, creator in my life. And that's something that I know very intimately from my own personal experience. So beautiful. And the truth has an incredible way of actually setting you free. Yeah. Whenever we share our our deepest truths, knowing that it is medicine for others to feel safe and comfortable in moments of great trauma and triage. Absolutely. I mean, I've been blown away actually afterwards with the response from women, Uh, women that our new friends, women that are old friends, you know, that they're sharing their story with me for the first time. And it's been something that is actually very taboo in my community. So um, one of our first uh, tribal leader, female tribal leaders was impeached um, because she brought up the idea of a Planned Parenthood in our community. (laughs) um, What? What? Oh yeah. So that's always in my head, but that happened when I was young. And so I was always so like looked up to her for standing up for women's reproductive rights um, from a young age. And so she was definitely an influencer in my life. And we have to pull that apart because I'm, I'm just going to straight up blame colonialism on that pivot because abortion and the right to choose has been part of indigenous globally indigenous culture since the beginning of time recorded in any way. And there's always been plants and medicines and people in community to help with those complications and often very serious medical complications that could end the life of the, of the mother that's always been here. So do you know, when does that get lost that a leader gets impeached for telling the truth of thousands of generations? Indian boarding school, residential schools. I mean, this is, you know, let's start right there. I mean, that's why our communities are having to really, relearn and re-acknowledge and reground is because of these teachings that taught us not to love ourselves, to look at ourselves as pagan or evil. And so then it, you know, it becomes this like self-hate that is perpetuated within like so many communities. And, and that's why we have to heal. I mean, that's why we have to tell the truth. That's why, you know, it's so important for us to uplift our ceremonies and our prayers and our way of life, Uh, because if we don't, there's not going to be any healing and we need healing definitely, but so does everybody else. And I think that if that's one gift that we can give, you know, to the world is that perspective. And I think that's what's been hidden for so long. But we are now, you know, standing in our strength. And I think it's just so amazing to be here in this day and to see, you know, so many generations of indigenous peoples, especially the younger generations who are so empowered and really want their culture and language back. And, and I think that's so, you know, heartening for me to, to see and to witness. That kind of support really just stokes the fire to continue pushing message and pushing movement. And so at the March itself, of course, you know, you've been to many, but this one that just happened, aside from seeing the youth stand up and show out in such incredible numbers, saw lots of people from every color, creed, and age in that crowd. Did anything in particular surprise you or give you hope? I mean, for me, to tell my story for the first time that I haven't told my entire life in front of this crowd 
that was so loving and supportive. I mean, that's how it should be, right? When somebody shares their deepest pain. Um, but, you know, and even if it is pain, I mean, it's, these decisions are, are decisions that people, women make um, for the best of whatever is best for them, whether it's health or economics or what have you. And that's okay. And I think when you look at one in four women have actually had abortions, we're the majority now. It's not this, you know, tiny group of people. I mean, this is 25% of the population, right? And you're, and you think about like the numbers. I mean, um, someone recently pointed out to me that that's probably the percentage of white men. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, okay, that's right. <laughs> Facts. And, Yeah. (laughs) So you think about that comparison and and the fact that we're still shamed for decisions that we have to make for the best of our lives, then, you know, that is unrealistic. And and I think we have to uh, speak out now. And And I think it is a part of this whole healing process. We have to be able to tell the truth. And, and I have never felt so much peace at one time and like giving a speech because I just knew that was the moment, you know, I've checked in before and was like, am I supposed to tell this? Right. And it, like, I felt like, no, <laughs> like you're not ready. Like you're like, no, this is not the moment. Um, but there were also scenarios that was supposed to happen. That didn't happen. That also influenced, like that's also things that influenced me. Um, so there are two groups of indigenous women that were supposed to come with me and be on stage with me. And they both backed out at like last minute for like random reasons. And so that's always sort of a thing to me, like, oh, that's weird. Like they would normally like be here singing with me. I, you know, and so when that didn't happen and then I was the only one there, like by myself going on stage, I was like, okay, this is super weird that it's just me. So like, let me check in and see like if there's something that's to this like odd thing that just happened. Um, And yeah, there was. And so I just, I knew that there were so many different reasons that were guiding me to the, to the moment of sharing it. And honestly, if you would ask me if I was going to share it, I mean, it, I literally, it wasn't even my, in my prepared speech that I submitted right. the night before. It right. wasn't. <laughs> I, I was just like, okay, I have to add these two sentences. And I was really, mm. I really loved the way that it came about because it was really coming from a loving space of spirituality and the creator and how I feel in my interactions with Tenkoshla, the creator. And so to be able to share that was really, really meaningful to me. And we're so grateful that you did. And I think there's a, if the lesson for anyone, anyone listening to this, um, I've never told the story. I'll tell a very quick anecdote. I did a talk, a TED talk in 2013 and it was when I had pushed from being a traditional restaurateur and entrepreneur and business person into social impact. Uh, and I was about a year and a half deep in it and scared and over leveraged and like saying all the accusatory things about all of the people and literally burning bridges left, right and center because of the anger when you uncover things and was going about it all the wrong way. And I'd prepared a talk that was more diplomatic. That was a, Hey, there's opportunity and our community is beautiful and there's a way to be engaged. And The experience that I had was I went on stage, I remember seeing the crowd, and then I remember bowing at the end. I was not in the influence of any drugs or alcohol. I went into flow state, and the message that was supposed to come came all the way through me with zero hesitation. And so it was like I was almost outside of my body watching. And it was the first time that I've ever actually channeled energy or been, for lack of a better terminology, spoken through. Yeah. And I, when you tell what you're telling, I think it's, it's uncomfortable for people to hear. They're like, oh, are you crazy? No, there's no, you've been in flow state, whether that's in sport, whether it's in a moment of triage or trauma, a car accident, whatever that may be, you know that you just act and words come and the right things happen. Does that feel like the state that you were in when you hit that stage by yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it felt different, but I, I, I've been in that state of what you call flow state a lot, actually. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. um, I guess it's something that I strive for, to be honest. You know, it's like, okay, let me, let me, let me just say like the 
bigger message that I'm supposed to say in this moment, you know? And, and so that's been a lot of my public speaking experience. Um, which is why I'm always like, okay, leave me alone five minutes before I have to talk because like, always, I to, <laughs> yeah, always. let me center. Months. Yeah. Yeah. Get, let me have the energy. <laughs> let me have the space. And, um, friends of the show know that I do this for a living as well. I get to speak multiple times a month and bring messaging to different groups. And I, I adore that part of my job. And people always ask me, you know, what have you prepared? And I was like, I have some images that I will run behind me. And then the, the message will be the message exactly as it's supposed to be during the day. And whether that's a reflection of the cumulative message that's been said beforehand, which is often the case in a punctuation of like, these are the things that we need to take home and act on um, or what that may look like. And I think, what I get from your talk, particularly at that, and all the stuff I've watched you say, is it truly is holding space. You know, you told us earlier on of as, you know, you have the elder energy and you feel more of like there's calling out and we wish that there could be more comfort in that. Well, there will be. Because in our circles, we are having more uncomfortable conversations all the time. I don't want to be in a room full of people that believe the same things I do. I've been in that room for too long. It's not helpful to anybody. The reason of the show is that this goes into households in what would typically be called the entire red belt. They're listening right now. And we love you. And we, we hope that we can meet you somewhere in the center and work to, to heal these things. It's incredibly important. So Sarah, again... Thank you for taking your time, which is incredibly valuable, uh, and sharing it with us today and sharing your vulnerability, your story. And we're so excited about the book and to have you back. Is there anything that you would like to share uh, in closing with the audience and with me? No, just thank you for having me and uh, thank you for you know honoring me. And, I, and also, I just also want to shout out that I think integrity, you said that earlier, you said integrity. And I think that that is something else that is really um, important. You know, when I was being raised, respect and integrity were pretty high up there with like humility. <laughs> so uh, I think that that's very grounding in my life of like how you how do you hold integrity, and especially in how you're healing and how you're working with others and and being, you know, truthful. So yeah, thank you for sharing your energy with me too. My absolute honor. When we say holding integrity in a system without it is one of the most challenging things that we face. Right? How do we do that? And it's by example. It's by continuing to stand tall in the moments, particularly when everybody thinks you're, you're not. Uh, and so thank you for consistently doing that. And we are coming to a close. I can't believe that time just disappeared on us and can't wait to have you back genuinely. Folks, as I said, all of the links will be in our socials to check in on Sarah Eagleheart. She's a must follow, particularly on Instagram uh, and tap in and see how you can support other organizations that are exponentially advocating and being accomplices for this work that she's both directly involved with and, and puts us onto. The teachings and the learnings are there. And, and we have to double down and figure out how we can bring true truth and reconciliation to, to the lands that we live on. This has been Better. My name is Mark Brand, and we've been with Sarah Eagleheart. So this particular time that I'm going to take with us each week is in part a reflection. What we do on Better is give as much space to our guests as possible. And as they share their stories things just erupt in me, right? So know that I'm in school every single week. This is class for me. I am learning deeper about the things I already care about through the tools that are being built for us. And that's a real gift. And so on the back end of these episodes, I'm going to take 10 minutes and record these for us each and every week. Because I think I want it to be like, if the reference lands for you, the Coles notes or the Cliff notes, and it's, it's sort of a live journal, if you will. And so what's first apparent in my body right now as I feel into it is we need more warriors. The world has never needed more warriors to stand in their truth, to stand in their power. Sarah shared with us the people of her nation being chased in cars, being threatened, being asked to move along. We've seen the Wet'suwet'en block here in Canada. We've seen BlackRock. 
We've seen people literally chaining themselves to trees to try and stop the murder of old growth forests. All of these people are warriors and they're standing in it. The only thing that I know is completely and utterly true is change comes from mass defense. Mass defense. When we all rally in one direction, the powers that be get very scared. And as we change and work hard to change who are those powers, we have to be accomplices to the warriors that are working. So how do we do that? We use our platforms. This is one. We use our money. We support causes that we care about and believe are just so that they may continue to advocate. We use our time. We show up to marches, regardless of what container we're in. At that women's march that Sarah talks about, there were a lot of people who identify as men. A lot. And that matters. There's a lot of people representing both sides of the political sphere. I may not think like you, I may not vote like you, but I believe in justice and I believe in safety. The issues that we're talking about all the time on this show, particularly with reproductive rights, we're not making a judgment of where you sit with whether you believe in abortion or not. We're talking about the right to choose, the right to choose life over death. Many of these choices are made based on complications. They're not based on somebody's flippant decisions as the narrative is towed. They're not based on evil. They're based on truth. And so we believe in a free and just society, but only so far as it makes us comfortable. And that's not the way we need to operate. We need to operate out of a place that says, If I don't agree with you, that doesn't mean I don't believe you should be able to choose. That you shouldn't be free. This last week, gun violence erupted again on the U.S. side. We're not sending prayers. We got to send votes. We have to upset the powers that are holding it legal to buy assault weapons in department stores. The shooter in Buffalo didn't come from nowhere. This wasn't a random mental health issue. He came from training of a narrative that is believed deeply by people who are afraid of receiving the same treatment that they have doled out for 400 plus years. And that fear is resulting in death and violence that goes completely unchecked. Completely unchecked. We now have the numbers. We have the data. We see it. When Sarah steps to a stage in Washington, D.C. as an indigenous, powerful woman and speaks her truth, make no mistake that a thought runs through her head of, will I live through today? Now, when a black grandmother goes to a grocery store in Buffalo or anywhere in New York or California or the middle of the country, they are literally planning an escape. Not for the if, but the when gun violence erupts. The land of the free, the home of the brave. Who's brave? Who's free? When we think about all these questions, we have to know that our role in it is critically important. Are we complicit because we are not educated? Is the education piece more important than an eight-tile swipe? on Instagram, or a one-minute reel on TikTok? Is it worth digging in and understanding how we have a role as somebody or a person who has the right to choose and vote and live in a democratic society on either side of the border? We have a direct responsibility to become further accomplices in what's right and what's just. I hope this week's episode hit you as hard as it hit me to really understand and reflect that the land that we're occupying, that the structures that we've built on it, 
while it may not have been you directly that did this work, which isn't a common trope, right? It wasn't me. Well, if you continue to sit in the privilege while other people starve, while they don't have homes, while they don't have clean drinking water, while their spiritual places are decimated to make pulp and paper, you have a role. You have a role. And I really hope that the, this episode and all the episodes like it help you understand calmly, peacefully, gently. You don't have to run out, buy all the books right now, unless that's what you want to do. But that you do have a role. And that role can also be in educating the people around you and sharing these stories and sharing these episodes and having discussions about them, uncomfortable discussions about them. Make no mistake, I am no different. I am wrong consistently. My language has to constantly adapt. I catch myself. And I work in this from the second I wake up to the second I go to bed. I also walk in a container of cis white male that is unearned privilege. And while I'm mindful of doing the work, I fall short all the time. And I mean all the time. So all we can do is get up and keep trying to do our absolute best for the folks who need us the most. Can't wait for you to join us again next week. Send you love, grace, and patience. Take great care out there.